0: Hello, I'm Victor Tabala, and this is Expert Voice, Eagle Natural Health's podcast and your partner in natural health wellbeing. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Christabel Yeo, a leading medical doctor with an interest in nutritional and environmental medicine. Christabel graduated from medicine at the University of London in 1999 and has obtained her membership with the Royal College of Physicians, which is based in the UK. She has a master's degree in nutrition from King's College in London. She has a strong interest in chronic disease management, neurological, gastrointestinal and metabolic health. She is also passionate about teaching on the interconnectedness of human metabolism, biology and behaviour. Christabel is a director and past president at the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, also known as ACNUM. Christabel is the medical director of Next Practice Gen Biome, which is a cutting-edge integrative health clinic in Sydney, providing a range of modalities addressing brain health and gut health. And I'm pleased to welcome Christabel to today's podcast. Christabel, thank you very much for your time today and welcome to Expert Voice.
1: Hi. Happy to be here.
0: Fantastic. So the mitochondria is, of course, the subject for today, which is, of course, the microscopic powerhouse organelles within our cells that has one of the most important functions in the human body to create energy. So today we'll be talking about how mitochondrial function helps us to stay healthy and active and ward off infection and disease. It's such a broad area of research. So today we're focusing on specifically on mitochondrial function and brain health and the important role our diet and lifestyle plays in our mental health and well-being. So Christabel, my first question for you today is what is mitochondrial dysfunction and what causes it?
1: So first I'll make a distinction between mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial dysfunction because mitochondrial disease is a more um, fixed medical entity which is often inherited genetic and long term whereas what we're talking about here today is primarily mitochondrial dysfunction where it's um, more related to nutritional lifestyle, environmental factors and it's reversible. So, you know, what causes it? I like to explain to people that the three main burdens of um, what the mitochondria have to do for us day by day is in three main categories. So what causes a dysfunction falls into largely these three main categories. Um, So the first category would be around toxins, as the mitochondria are very much involved in handling our toxins. So... Toxin overexposure is going to cause some mitochondrial dysfunction. The second category would be around pathogens. So chronic exposure um, or chronic infectious burden is going to lead to mitochondrial dysfunction. And the third really is what you might call lifestyle habits, but I like to call metabolic burdens. So our metabolic burdens and our metabolic um, demands and requirements is really what we generate. Uh, or we recover depending on what we do with our lifestyle. So that's how we eat and when we don't eat, uh, how much we sleep, how hard do we exercise, how well do we recover. So it's really the total metabolic burden. So it's those three major categories, I would say, is what leads to mitochondrial dysfunction and the imbalances within them.
0: And you think about uh, what happens in, in today's lifestyle in, in terms of the fact that we do get pretty much exposed or are involved, I guess, in, in such areas. So toxins, for example, we're constantly being exposed to toxins in the environment, pathogens, well how many times do we suffer from colds and flus, for example, and of course, well, the dreaded lifestyle habits, or it doesn't have to be dreaded, but it's just the, th- the things that we don't do with our lifestyle that could potentially help us to not only support our mitochondria, but also to uh, allow us to live a much more healthier life, uh, general well-being, and so forth. And those lifestyle habits that you spoke about, so eating, sleeping, for example, these are the things that we do every day and more often than not, we do take for granted. So these factors can certainly, uh, once addressed properly, if such a condition like mitochondrial dysfunction is, is diagnosed, it's something which should be addressed effectively so we can not only have or improve our mitochondrial health, uh, but that basically supports general health and well-being. I mentioned earlier about the mitochondria being the powerhouses of our bodies in regards to being the little organelles that help to produce energy. And of course, we're looking at energy in terms of ATP production. So Christabel, could you take us through um, or explain what it is about ATP production?
1: Okay, so ATP production. Well, uh, I'll take you through that process. It's also known as cellular respiration. But before I do that, I will say that whenever you Google mitochondria and you look at um, all those statements about mitochondria being the powerhouses of our cells, I would just like to say that even before ATP production and ATP synthesis, the mitochondria have other obligatory functions. So there's a whole hierarchy to the cellular Intracellular organelle and what it does. So yes, it does ATP production very efficiently. But first, it's going to want to consume oxygen, and it's going to want uh, to be the first messengers in innate immunity. Now we're going to come back to that because that's uh, related to what you were saying about dealing with infections and uh-huh. and, and our immune system. But okay, so ATP production. Um, so cellular respiration that involves three steps now the first step in uh, making energy is in fact not in the mitochondria so it's in the cytoplasm outside of the mitochondria so inside the cell and this is what i mean by you know you don't actually really need mitochondria to make atp you could just just about cope on the first step of ATP production which is glycolysis where you change one glucose molecule um, into two little ATP molecules Mm -hmm. but if our mitochondria and our energy production is going to be more efficient then it proceeds on to the next step the second step is called the Krebs cycle also known as the TCA uh, cycle and that's where uh, you need oxygen so oxygen with what the glucose has turned into, which is called pyruvate, pyruvate goes into the mitochondria and together with oxygen is going to produce um, more ATP as well as lots of high energy electrons. And it's that energy electron that really is the gold to our energy and our mitochondria. So those high energy electrons then enter the third part of cellular respiration and that's inside the mitochondrial membranes um in these things called electron transport carriers and it's and these electrons are passed down it's almost like your hand passing to the next hand all the way down these chains of electron transport carriers where then they produce another 32 atps so if you're um cellular respiration or ATP production cycle is going well and your mitochondria are really ticking over efficiently, that glucose energy is going to give you 36 ATPs, ATP produced. But if it's inefficient, you may get two or four.
0: Okay. So... Looking at the electron transport chain and also the Krebs cycle, so one would say that uh, both of those um, areas of ATP production is going to be more important for more your endurance-type athletes, for example, so people who are going to be doing a lot of um, aerobic activity for an extended period of time, whereas if you're looking at the glycolysis, that's more for a short-term or an anaerobic isn't it? So basically that's where you're not necessarily relying on oxygen to produce the ATP because you're only relying on that burst of energy that those two ATPs for just maybe 15 seconds or 10 seconds. So for example, for an athlete who's doing like a hundred meter sprint, for example, is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So anaerobic metabolism versus aerobic metabolism. Anaerobic is that short fast sprint. You don't need a lot of oxygen. Anaerobic metabolism is that long distance Uh, runner that needs a good amount of um, endurance and stamina Um, and that's a nice concept to explain to people that's how our mitochondria uh, can function in the short burst versus the long endurance but really we want to have efficient long burning energy mitochondria all the time for our brain, for our liver, all our um, organs, and not just for our muscles, which certainly that's, it's very um, mitochondria dense in our muscles.
0: Okay. So we've just spoken about mitochondrial function. So in terms of mitochondrial function and our gut health, Christabel, would you be able to give us a bit of an overview on the relationship between the two?
1: I would love to explain to you gut health and mitochondrial function, because I think Uh, most people wouldn't think of that directly now these days most people think about you know the gut brain axis and of course they think about inflammation and leaky gut Uh, but what i would say is that actually all of that is really connected probably through mitochondrial microbiome um, like the gut microbes so the microbes talking to the mitochondria and that particular interaction because we, we now know, you know, gut health has got so much to do with inflammation, um, intestinal permeability, otherwise known as leaky gut, um, and our immune system, now gut, otherwise known as our new cause of immunity. Um, but if you connect this all up together, you know, what the research is showing now is that the gut microbiota, so the gut bugs, are really signaling to our mitochondria. And depending on what they're signaling, it's shown to um, alter our mitochondrial metabolism. It will change and activate our immune system. Uh, It will uh, dictate and alter our levels of inflammation through changing our genetics, or that's called epigenetics, and that's also called inflammasome signaling. And so the gut bacteria and my um mitochondrial connection, you know, it's really only with the new advances of uh technology uh that we can actually see like what's going on between the two of them. There's this whole uh bi-directional um crosstalk. So, you know, we just said that the gut bacteria can change our mitochondrial function, but equally our mitochondrial function because of the Uh, reactive oxygen species production really has also a crucial role in uh, regulating the gut microbiome so they're really changing each other.
0: So again that highlights the importance that I guess in not only previous podcasts that, that we've made but also in general that people are talking about the importance of gut health and how the gut not just improves like it's not just about digestive health but it's also a reflection on every or almost every other system in our body isn't it so when it comes to the nervous system uh, now the mitochondrial function as well there is such a a connection and so it's very important to ensure that gut health is always at the front of mind, I think, when it comes to uh, looking at such conditions, particularly now that we know that there is a connection between this and also mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. and
1: I'd love to jump in there and say that, um, you know, certainly gut health, but also think about our evolutionary um, history, where we've come from, because our mitochondria, you know, they're what are called prokaryotic cells, which means, single unicellular organisms, just like bacteria. And so why shouldn't our mitochondria speak to our gut bacteria? Because they have the same evolutionary background. They have the same uh, messaging system. They have the same communication language. Mm -hmm. Um, And we should think of our health really also from an evolutionary perspective. So conceptually, it's not new to think of humans um, as a massive sea of microbes. You know we've already been saying how humans are super organisms because we've got an incredible sea of microbes in us on us, um, and we need them to live and we need our microbiota to determine um, the functionality of our immune system, for example. But now you can just go another step or few steps deeper to, to think that our microbiota, um, seek to our mitochondria and that they they really come from the same evolutionary uh,
0: background. So now going back to mitochondrial dysfunction, Christabel, can you tell us what are some of the health effects or symptoms of mitochondrial dysfunction across all of our energy-intensive organs, such as, for example, our liver, the heart, which of course beats forever, and the brain? Could you take us through some of those details?
1: Yeah, sure. So every single um, Organ and cell within our organs uh, contain hundreds to thousands of mitochondria. And depending on the uh, function of what that organ needs to do, it's going to have uh, a lot more or quite a few less. So, our tissues that contain the most mitochondria because of its high energy demands, and for example, some tissues uh, never rest, like our nerves. Our nervous system never rests. You know, your brain keeps going even when you're sleeping. Um, so our nerves and our muscles have heaps and heaps of mitochondria. And so whenever we have some degree of mitochondrial weakness or mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial fatigue, the tissues that are going to show up most are going to be in the muscles and the brain. So classically, a person with mitochondrial dysfunction will will complain of, Some degree of exercise intolerance. So, if you ask them, Oh, how did you recover after that gym session? Or, How did you go after um, going for that walk? You know, did you need three hours to lie down and sleep? Or, you know, a week to recover? You're going to um, catch those people who have mitochondrial dysfunction if they complain of exercise intolerance. The next one often would be around um, muscle pain, body pain, um, and also poor muscle tone, remember that there's so many varying degrees of dysfunction. It could be, you know, 10% dysfunctional, um, theoretically, or it could be 80%. uh, And people are really going to report different degrees of symptoms because they'll have different degrees of, um, well, what they're doing and how hard they're pushing themselves. So I always like to ask People who are going to the gym and you know, not necessarily diagnosed with a disorder, but I'll say to to a young man, Hey, you know, how are you going with your training? Are you building the muscles you are you think you should be building compared to your mates at the gym? Or do you have to work super hard at it and if you don't go to the gym for two weeks you feel like all your muscles have gone. And so it's those guys, you know, who say, Oh yeah, you know, they just always feel like they've got low muscle tone and so on. So that's a real indicator for mitochondrial dysfunction as well Um, so we said exercise intolerance we said low muscle tone and muscle pain or body pain and the third one would be around learning difficulties Um, so again depending on the age of the person you know if it's a child then obviously uh, learning difficulties and the the whole range of learning difficulties they may be you know some dyslexia or much more serious learning disabilities Or I suppose then at the other end of the spectrum, when we're older, it would be memory loss and cognitive impairment and so on. And of course, in children, it would be poor growth. And then um, the next thing I would say is chronic fatigue, needing to sleep all the time. And then the last thing, which would be, you know, the most obvious thing would be when someone's already been diagnosed with a disease. So if they've been diagnosed with, Cancer, diabetes, or metabolic syndrome, depression, you know, Parkinson's disease, um, Alzheimer's disease. So there are a whole lot of you know chronic diseases that are really common in today's medical world. So many chronic diseases that people have been diagnosed with, and you you could pretty much go back to the literature and say that all of those diseases are connected to mitochondrial dysfunction.
0: Wow! I mean, this is. I mean, this could potentially be, well, I hate to use big words in terms of describing something like this in terms of being grand, but it could be a revelation for so many people because when we think about, for example, you talked about exercise intolerance. Now, most of us would think of that, particularly when we're walking away from a workout, being in such pain and discomfort and so forth, it could be just due to, we usually just blame, you know, a a heavy load of lactic acid that's produced afterwards, right? So the thing is that if that's continuing to occur on a regular basis, because we know that after you start to exercise more regularly, then your lactic acid levels, generally speaking, tend to lower. But if that pain or that poor recovery is still occurring after exercise despite doing the same routines and so forth then maybe perhaps mitochondrial dysfunction could possibly or potentially be one of the answers that needs to be addressed in this situation and i guess the same thing with the learning difficulties as well again you might you might speak to a gp or a doctor or a, about this potential problem with learning difficulties like dyslexia but you sort of wonder has Mitochondrial dysfunction being brought up as a potential factor in all this, so it just gives us another area that we can focus on to be able to achieve, I guess, better results with with people who may be suffering from such conditions.
1: Indeed, indeed, and certainly there are some conditions like you know dyslexia or other learning disabilities might be might run in families, and it's not necessarily going to just completely go away with improving mitochondrial function but Mm -hmm. it certainly would be a lot easier on the person to learn and some conditions i would say dare say would certainly get a lot better and go away for example maybe you know um uh in a child low muscle tone is one thing that's often picked up and not thought to be related to mitochondrial dysfunction and the child is thought to be floppy and less coordinated, but you can certainly Mm -hmm. improve uh, their muscle function by very specifically targeting mitochondria. Yeah. So with exercise, you know, as you say, you go to the gym, you make lactic acid. um, It hurts for a while, but it should. And it's good to push yourself Mm -hmm. and break a few muscles and um, damage a few uh, mitochondria because that's its very job. You know, the The job of our mitochondria and our adaptive capacity to grow and be strong is to uh, get broken and then recover. And it's that recovery time that is critical. So, asking people, How long do you take to recover? And if it seems longer than usual, then going back to say, Okay, so why don't my mitochondria help my muscles to recover as quickly as they should do? And it's actually only exercise. Like, exercise is the only thing you um, can do to make new mitochondria we're going to talk about supplements but supplements don't make new mitochondria only exercise does
0: that is fantastic to know because as you know with exercise well I guess for you know a lot of people out there who um, are wanting to engage in exercise for a lot of them it's all about weight loss or weight management but here we have, as you just said, another reason why to exercise, to simply improve and to support our mitochondria. I mean, <laughs> fantastic. I mean, as you said earlier, like we have these organs in our bodies, our, our, our muscles, our heart, our nerves, they all have such a, um, a large amount of mitochondria uh, to support them. And so by simply exercising, you're supporting mitochondrial function in general and you get the other health benefits on top of that too so yeah, it's a very um, important reason another reason why to include exercise as part of your daily uh, lifestyle
1: yeah yeah and you know if you don't exercise you don't move enough then you know i mentioned those electrons going down the electron transport chain in the inner the mitochondrial membrane Then they can't actually shift down um that chain of electrons so you almost need to dump electrons and dump energy to generate uh, more energy and more ATP production. Otherwise, those electron transport chain can't uh, drop what they're already holding and they can't function well.
0: So we know that mitochondria are the powerhouse of our cells that we've mentioned before, which produce energy to keep the organs of our body functioning. So now, can you explain the role of mitochondria specifically as it relates to brain health and neurological function?
1: Yes, sure. So that's uh, uh, a big question. You know, earlier I said how the mitochondria uh, don't just make ATP, but there are some other very obligatory functions. So it can't not consume oxygen. Uh, The mitochondria can't not produce reactive oxygen species and manage uh, cellular redox. So there are all these... Systems that are already built into the mitochondria that it's just already uh, doing as a result of the environmental loads. So if the mitochondria is loaded with certain environmental burdens, like like we eat too often and we eat too much and we eat too many carbohydrates, um, and we you know smoke and drink too much alcohol and put Uh, stresses on the uh, mitochondria because the mitochondria's job is to remove and neutralize and manage all of that um, what's called reduction oxidation systems also known as redox. So the reason why um, mitochondria functioning well in the nerves is so critical is because we also have to think of this aspect of what we call microglial activation or Essentially that's inflammation in the brain. So the microglia are the immune cells in the brain and the mitochondria are constantly talking to the microglia. And uh, the crosstalk between them if the mitochondria is saying it's too much, it's too much, there's too much you know redox imbalance and too much oxidative stress, uh, or I've got too many viruses to fight and it's going to trigger, Um, innate immunity then it's going to set off the microglial cells into an inflammatory spin so it's like a one-two punch you know one punch is you've got inflammation driven by um, infection burden or metabolic burden and then the second punch is then the mitochondria can't make enough ATP to help you to get over those burdens and that's why particularly brain health and neurological uh, functioning that really um, carries, that really expresses whenever there's problems in the mitochondria and the neurons. Like, let me just give you an example. Mm-hmm. You know, the dopaminergic neurons in an area of the brain called the substantia nigra and uh, Parkinson's disease is known to have issues with dopamine relating to the substantia nigra. Mm-hmm. So those neurons have just enormous huge long axons so long nerves basically and the density of the mitochondria in there is just incredible just one neuron in that area of the brain is roughly about this is calculated as about two million mitochondria wow that's like two million mitochondria consuming oxygen which it really needs to do So how you breathe and how much oxygen you're exposing your um, cells to make a real difference. So the oxygen consumption and the ATP production, you know, all that work going in there just to keep that one cell alive in that part of the brain that's so important for preventing Parkinson's. So that's just a really um, simple example.
0: Wow, and that's amazing because um, going back to my um, anatomy and physiology textbooks, and you see the term substantia nigra, would it be fair to say that that nigra part refers to the fact that tissue is so dense of mitochondria that it makes it black, literally? Is that the, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm just trying to think, That's. I remember back to university and uh, remembering that that connection. So, uh, well, that explains it because of, as you said, You need so much mitochondria for that one particular cell. So, and look, this is an off-the-topic sort of question here, but is that something that could potentially be, or is it now being addressed at this moment for our patients out there or our customers out there who are suffering from Parkinson's disease?
1: So, if you ask, is the mitochondria being addressed uh, in Parkinson's disease? I would say at the practice level of medicine, no, it's not, because right now, right now, the only treatment for Parkinson's disease is to replace the dopamine deficiency with dopamine related drugs, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think we'll touch on this again later because it's a really interesting field of um, medicine right now is around um, photobiomodulation and light, So photobiomodulation is certainly an area being researched in Parkinson's and applying certain light frequencies to the brain uh, is showing great promise in treating Parkinson's disease. And I think that's really working via the mitochondria, but that's a very new area of research. And doctors and neurologists in their clinics certainly at this stage would not be thinking about that, nor would they uh, be applying Mitochondrial uh, concepts to their treatments.
0: Well, the research now is saying that perhaps maybe it should be considered right in, in, in this situation, given the fact that Parkinson's disease is on the rise.
1: Indeed. And also, of course, Alzheimer's disease and memory loss and depression and anxiety. You know, mitochondrial um, mechanisms and, and mitochondrial medicine uh, should be applied in all of those things.
0: And that leads to my next question, actually. So you spoke before about the issue now relating to potential problems such as Alzheimer's and dementia. So could you explain the natural process of brain ageing and the continual decrease in ability to produce the ATP?
1: Yes, so brain ageing. Now, some people would say that the mitochondria really are the, the reason why we age. Um, of course, you can talk about telomeres and all sorts of other genetic and cellular mechanisms of aging. But most people have um, heard about parts of um, inflammation causing aging, also known as inflammaging.
0: Inflammaging, yes.
1: And where does inflammation come from? It comes from the mitochondria. So I mentioned earlier that the mitochondria make reactive oxygen species, and that's actually like the most essential part of its day-to-day life like life day in the life of mitochondria is it needs to make uh, reactive oxygen species in order to produce ATP it's just part of the normal metabolic cycles it's a bit like if you want heat and you're going to um, light a fire you're going to get smoke you can't have one without the other so the levels of uh, mitochondrial stress therefore and the inflammation that's being pushed out, so the imbalance of the reactive oxygen species and um, how well we can recover and clean up the smoke or the reactive oxygen species is what is going to determine how fast we age, that's that inflammation. And um, what's behind that is how how much are we smoking out our um, mitochondrial genes? because our mitochondria have their own genes you know i was, I was saying how they're unicellular uh, organisms in and of themselves they can exist on their own they've got their own genes and it's the reactive oxygen species that um, smoke out these genes and cause mutations which is what leads to aging and we know that you know by the age of 70 80 uh, our mitochondrial genome has suffered heaps and heaps of mutations, and it's that uh, mutation that really um, affects our ageing.
0: So the reactive oxygen species, So would it be fair to say that these are also known or these are examples of pro-oxidants as opposed to antioxidants, for example?
1: Yes, uh, reactive oxygen species are pro-oxidants, and that's just the normal part of our chemistry that we have those cycles. So that's the redox, reduction, oxidation, so we've got pro-oxidants, and then we'll have antioxidant, antioxidant molecules in our cells to then um, neutralise them, and that's partly what we use nutrients to support, and that's partly where we we um, modify our lifestyles to not have too much oxidative stress. You know, I was saying how the you might have too much mitochondrial ageing and oxidative stress, and the other side of that is that if you can't recover those things enough, and that's with processes like mitophagy, because mitophagy is the removal of damaged parts of mitochondria. It's always not just how hard we exercise, it's how fast we recover. So even at that cellular level, you know, we've got those pro-oxidant molecules you mentioned, but how well are we Removing them and recovering the mitochondria—that's through mitophagy. So things that stop us or slow our mitophagy processes will also lead to aging.
0: In terms of brain aging, is there anything we can do or support it from a lifestyle perspective to help delay or maybe even reverse it?
1: The most obvious one there that um, most people are not doing well enough with is sleep. Sleep. Sleeping more, um, getting good. Uh, you know, sleep architecture, not just the hours of sleep, but the quality and the architecture of our sleep, you know, having the deep sleep, um, REM sleep, and have enough hours. You know, we could do a whole podcast on sleep separately, but sleep in and of itself would be an incredible goal to have to prevent brain aging. And then the next thing would be just all of the normal lifestyle, nutritional metabolic things to support your mitochondria, but sleep.
0: It's a big one, sleep. I know that the many um, practitioners who I speak to about sleep, every single one of them say pretty much, oh yes, it is an issue. Not just getting to sleep, but also maintaining sleep as well and maintaining that sleep for a longer period of time. We, we spoke about sleep with Vanita Dahia on a previous podcast and how important that is. So apart from sleep, Another area, of course, and we've touched upon this quite a bit, is diet. So in your opinion, how does our diet specifically affect the way our mitochondria perform and how can we influence this?
1: Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, we said that a big part of what our mitochondria have to juggle, like they have to juggle lots of things. So they have to juggle pathogens, they have to juggle toxins, and then they have to juggle our metabolic burden. So diet really fits. Into that because if we're eating, you know, a lot of chemicals and toxic foods and um, food that's sprayed with a lot of pesticides, then you're giving our mitochondria more toxic burdens to deal with. Particularly where a lot of these chemicals can be fat soluble, so the fat soluble toxins go into our cell membranes because they're fat, fat, mm-hmm. um, and our mitochondria are also. Uh, fatty, so they have a double lipid membrane, and and these fat soluble toxins can go into the mitochondrial membranes as well and block a whole bunch of the proteins and carrier molecules that need to work well in there. So toxicity is one part in relation to our diet, but the other part of our diet is really um, I use that analogy of smoke and fire. So if you need heat, then you have to light a fire, and you're always going to get smoke. So uh, as we need energy, we always have to eat and we're going to have um, some mitochondrial smoke to deal with. So how much we eat and how often we eat and what we eat uh, will determine how much uh, mitochondrial so-called smoke we produce. That's the reactive oxygen species. Um, And eating carbohydrates produces more smoke than eating fat for example, because of the respiratory quotient of the the macronutrient. So eating less carbohydrates and more fat, so that's going to a more low-carb, high-fat diet, certainly gives less mitochondrial work. And then also eating less in general, so fasting a bit, intermittent fasting, not snacking all the time. And when we do that, that just gives space, more space for our liver and our mitochondria to you know, not have to deal with our food all the time. So that would be the, the main things I'd like to explain to people on diet, but that's the macronutrient level and we'll come to the micronutrients.
0: So the next question, of course, is now we spoke before about diet, but now, and this is probably going to be a big question that people are wanting to know, Could you give us an outline on the role of vitamins and antioxidants in supporting mitochondrial energy, and specifically in the brain?
1: So when I think about um, micronutrients in supporting mitochondria, um, I'm usually thinking of the mitochondrial structure and function, um, not just antioxidants, let's say, because we've touched on antioxidants a, a lot. Um, and with antioxidants it's actually more about getting the balance right, and the balance is really the whole picture, the lifestyle, the sleep, um, the how how hard you're exercising, how often you're exercising or recovering or not recovering. So that's a big driver of the oxidative part, but with just the micronutrients in um, mitochondrial systems and you know what's needed to drive the citric acid cycle. Uh, what's needed to drive beta-oxidation burning fat and um, what's needed to support the electron transport chain, then the sort of nutrients that I would be thinking about and that I'd like to um, give people would include coenzyme Q10, B vitamins particularly, uh, vitamin B3 and B5, magnesium, I do like to also give D-ribose. That's not technically a vitamin. Um, it's a five-carbon sugar that helps to just shortcut and boost that ATP production a little bit. Um, like to give people uh, creatine as well. And the antioxidants, if I was to use antioxidants, would be alpha-lipoic acid, uh, resveratrol. So those would be probably... My top favorites for um, for mitochondrial uh, nutrients, and, and that's more to do with the internal function and, and in relation to the structure, because you know the structure of the inner mitochondrial membrane is critical to its function, and all the electron uh, transport carriers sit through the mitochondrial membranes. Um, would be to make sure that people are having the right lipids and the right fats so on a kind of macronutrient diet level um, not eating bad fats and not eating trans fats um, I'm afraid you know that means no takeout at all because I haven't (laughs) been to a single um, takeaway or fish and chips or anything like that where they don't use Bad fats, and certainly, I must say, in many restaurants. It's questionable what oils they use too. Um, and why not bring your own olive oil or ghee to the chef and say, "Hey, do you mind cooking my meal with this?" Um, so, so not eating bad fats um, can make you a bit unsociable, but it's critical for the mitochondria. Uh, and then eating the good fats, so the good grass-fed butters, um, ghee. You know avocado um, and good saturated as well as uh, mono and unsaturated fats. So that would be you know DHA. DHA is really important for the mitochondria as well. Um, of course EPA and other omega sixes. For example, cold pressed safflower oil, um, evening primrose oil to mm-hmm. produce to give you some of the good omega six because most omega. Sixes that we get in our diet are through the processed oils and packaged foods that we eat, which are, of course, bad ones. And then uh, finally, on the lipid front, phospholipids, so egg yolks, um, organ meats, uh, liver, <laughs> nice. uh, brain. If you live in France, plenty of brain there in yeah. every single <laughs> and butcher liver, you
0: walk past. And liver pate as well, right?
1: <laughs> Indeed, liver pate, yes. Um, pancreas so organ meats have really a lot of phospholipids now in this country that doesn't go down too well uh, when I suggest that pate is probably where people can push it push it to but indeed I like to give phospholipid supplements because um, I think people don't have enough um, phospholipids and certainly I like to put egg yolks in smoothies
0: Nice, and uh, I'm just thinking now back to um, well, you talk about foods uh, that contain the organ meats. I'm think back to the good old steak and kidney pies that they used to have. I don't know, I don't even know if they still serve steak and kidney pies here, but uh, (laughs) I remember that was quite a big one, along with things like tripe, for example, uh, which was quite a popular organ meat based food back in the day just referring to the CoQ10 that you mentioned before, do you have a preference between the ubiquinone or the activated version known as ubiquinol?
1: Um, Yes, thanks for bringing that up. i would certainly use the activated uh, ubiquinol and I find that clinically that gives uh, people better results as well. So the final thing I like to um, give for mitochondrial support and this is probably people don't necessarily think of it this way as mitochondrial support because it's not necessarily in your usual CoQ10s and magnesium and ribose, but I really like to think of um, electrolytes and minerals. Mm. Remember that we said the mitochondria are really the gatekeepers of redox, reduction, oxidation reactions, and that's that's the negative positive charge of uh, acro- across cell membranes. And I think that too many people have um, redox issues, uh, and that redox issues really needs electrolytes and minerals to balance to, to, to be better. Some people would talk about that in terms of maybe being more alkali. Um, but I do like to give uh, minerals, particularly the fulvic acid forms of minerals, so very bioorganic minerals, which have been shown to um, to be helpful across a whole number of chronic diseases. And in, in some literature, in uh, Ayurvedic medicine, it's known as um, shilajit. S H I L A J I T. It's from um, humus, so it's this kind of soil, uh, humic acid, fulvic acid. Uh, material from, you know, many years of decomposed um, uh, bioorganic material. That's what um,
0: these fulvic acid minerals contain. So Christabel, my, my last question for you is, is there any other new research that may impact the way we look after our cell health to help improve our mental health?
1: Uh, yes, there is. There's some really exciting stuff going on. Um, across a few fronts, I would say. So let me think. So firstly, just at that cellular level of the mitochondria we've been talking about, I haven't mentioned the cell danger response. Now this isn't that new in terms of um, its publications has been going on for about five, eight, maybe 10 years by uh, Robert Navio, talking about the cell danger response um, and how to, you know, what are, what's the signaling going on in the mitochondria that kind of tips that cell into the so-called cell danger response, which is what then drives the vicious cycles of chronic disease. So I think there's going to be a lot coming out there as to how to switch off um, those cell danger response signals because it's, you know, our cells and our mitochondria are really very overburdened and overloaded, be it from our environment and toxicity or be it from infections. So there's gonna be a lot there. And what's really interesting, I think, too, is they're starting to connect that up to the autonomic nervous system too. Now we haven't talked about the autonomic nervous system mm. enough, and that would be a whole <laughs> another fun podcast to do.
0: Another podcast, absolutely, yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but the just at that mitochondrial level, there's probably, you know, autonomic or vagal signals um, that speak to cells that speak to directly the mitochondria um, that can drive or support inflammation or recovery pathways. So there's a lot of research um, going on there and there's all this work also from, you know, Stephen Porges from the polyvagal theory and uh, Bob Navio on the cell danger response and how those things might connect up. Um, And another area that I'm excited about is the effect of light and magnetism on our mitochondria. Mm. So our mitochondria aren't just uh, chemistry factories pumping out, you know, chemical molecules of ATP. They're actually like biophysics machinery. They're like biophysics computers where they interpret signals and frequencies of light, and that they can also uh, respond to. Uh, magnetic fields so uh, the magnetic fields we expose ourselves to you know of course there's a natural emf like gravitational forces and and the sunlight the whole spectrum of light that comes from the sun um, that certainly impact our mitochondria and then as well the non-native emf that could be impacting our mitochondria in a adverse way For example, cell phone radiation, uh, 4G, 5G, uh, Wi-Fi radiation. So our cells uh, are electrically driven thanks to our mitochondria. And therefore, we can't ignore that uh, electricity impacts them as well.
0: And therefore, our whole cell health. I look forward to um, reading and hearing more about this research because it is something that's widely being discussed, isn't it? Like the whole issue with non-natural types of VMF that's being emitted from the sources you mentioned before—the Wi-Fi, 4G, 5G. I mean, you you read up about you know the concerns being raised about 5G now. So I guess it's a it's an area that shouldn't be ignored, and I do hope that further research. I mean, there's some great research as you've as you've, as you've said. There's already great research out there but certainly more and more research from this, which the public needs to know about as well. Because again, it could be something that, um, that you know a lot of us aren't aware of.
1: That's right. And even down to just um, blue light. So your electricity mm. at home, once the sun's gone down, you put your lights on, yep. you're sitting in your kitchen, having dinner with your, your lights overhead. And that blue light is signaling to our brain uh, and our mitochondria pick it up and, you know, changing our melatonin responses. And there's there's a whole load of exciting things coming out in, in that research there. I think that we're going to hear a lot more about that in the next decade.
0: So it's certainly interesting to hear about the important role that diet and certain nutrients and our lifestyles indeed can play when it comes to looking after our mitochondrial health. So, Christabel, thank you very much for your time today and talking through these critical points about mitochondrial health and general well-being.
1: You're welcome. I'm a complete mitochondriac. And so I'm happy to talk to people about mitochondria anytime. And I think if we all looked after our mitochondria, we would be that much more
0: (laughs) healthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you've turned me into one as well. Thanks again, Christabel. Thank you and we encourage you to consult with your healthcare practitioner for advice on whether supplements are suitable for you. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, we'd appreciate you jumping onto iTunes to provide us with a rating and a review. If you have a topic that you'd like us to cover, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us via the Eagle Natural Health website, which is www.eaglenaturalhealth.com.au in the Contact Us section. I'm Victor Zabala. Thanks for listening.